Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Everybody, we have news. November of 2024, we are going to Cape Cod, Massachusetts to treat folklore and Evermore by Taylor Swift as sacred. I'm so excited to lead this pilgrimage. These albums are such a different space for Taylor, where instead of being about litigating a tabloid narrative that's been created around her and her life and asserting her own perspective, this was about her re- interpreting her own feelings and experiences through fictional lenses. And so we get to meet all of these characters and some of them are like con men who fall in love with other con people. And others are like depressed middle-aged people who are like, if this is the best I can do, (laughs) work with me here. And I am so excited to sort of talk about the kind of art that you get to create when you have privacy and you're free from scrutiny and self-examination. I'm so excited to explore all of that at the beautiful auto camp where everybody is going to have a private 1950s Airstream that's been converted into like a luxury hotel room complete with your own bathroom. It's just like the best glamping situation you could possibly imagine. Which I've just wanted to glamp my whole life. I'm so excited. Everybody, this is going to be November 8th through 11th in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. You can find out more by going to readingandwalkingwith.com. Hello, beautiful, hot, and bothered listeners. We have another special episode for you today while we are on hiatus and busy preparing for our next season. I was lucky enough to guest on the incredible podcast Material Girls in order to talk about the show Bridgerton. Material Girls is a podcast that looks at cultural moments that were big, that were zeitgeisty at the time, and uses scholarly lenses in order to understand why they were such a big deal when they happened. So they look at things like Prince Harry's book Spare, but they also go back and talk about things like James Cameron's Avatar. They had me on, as I said, to talk about Bridgerton, which I think we can all agree had a huge moment in 2020. Season three is about to come out. It got a spinoff series called Queen Charlotte. All of this is by Shonda Rhimes, the genius behind shows like Grey's Anatomy. But I don't know if you know this. Bridgerton was my gateway into romance novels. And in fact, if you go back and listen to season one of Hot and Bothered, you will hear an interview with Julia Quinn, who we were lucky enough to have on season one. And so it was an absolute delight to go and show off my Bridgerton bona fides on Material Girls. We hope you enjoy this special episode. And if you're like, oh my God, Marcel Cosman and Hannah McGregor are amazing. I want to spend more time with them. There are two things you can do. One, go subscribe to Material Girls. And two, go over and listen to our podcast, Should I Quit? Where this week's episode is me talking to Marcel Cosman as to whether or not she should quit drinking wine. Thanks, everyone. And we'll talk to you soon. Hey, folks. Today's episode is all about Bridgerton. 
We talk about the books a bit, but largely focus on the TV adaptation. If you want to avoid spoilers, skip this episode. We also want to give you a content warning. In the last 20 minutes of the episode, in the final segment, we talk in depth about depictions of sexual assault and non-consent more broadly. You can listen through Hannah's thesis in the final segment and then turn off the episode if you'd rather not hear that part of the conversation. Take care of yourselves. Welcome to Material Girls, a scholarly podcast about popular culture. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And for this episode, we have a very special guest. You know and love her as the host of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, Hot and Bothered, and Should I Quit? And as the author of Praying with Jane Eyre, it's Vanessa Zoltan! Hi. Thanks for making this podcast just for me. It like hits every pleasure center in my brain. Yeah, it is just for you. I have so many questions about your relationship to romance and romance novels and romance reading. But I actually just want to start things off by asking a little bit about your own personal fictional crushes. Vanessa... Who's your top fictional crush right now? Right now, I am just finishing my reread of Emma by Jane Austen. Have not read Emma half a lifetime ago. I read it when I was 20. I'm now 41. And here's the thing. I would not want to be in a relationship with Mr. Knightley, but he hits like every kink I have. (laughs) Daddy? Yes. Like, older, wiser, wants me to be the best version of myself, is always out there, like, doing sacrificial things. But as soon as someone is, like, you're sacrificing yourself, he literally rides off on a horse in the middle of a conversation if you're thanking him for something. (laughs) He's like, I don't want to hear it. Bye. (laughs) Oh, my God. I love that one of your kinks is rides off on a horse in the middle of a conversation. (laughs) In the middle of a compliment. He's just like, my ego is all set. I don't need you to kiss my ass. Yeah. It's not the middle of a conversation. It's the middle of a compliment. Oh, that's important clarification. I love it so much. Okay. But in order to honor my like full sexual identity, I also have to talk about we are watching and rewatching Paddington 1 and 2 a lot in my house right now. You have a young child. (laughs) She's not that young. These are perfect (laughs) films. They are 10 and 15. They are so wholesome. Anyway, Mrs. Brown played by Sally Hawkins in these films is like an artistic genius who is willing to get up to shenanigans. (laughs) And it like brings a refugee into her house because it's the right thing to do. She draws on the walls. Her fashion, she wears so many colors. I love her. I actually do feel like stern daddy plus chaotic, like... Whimsical. Whimsical women. Like, that is your life. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hannah, uh, <laughs> for those of you listening, just spent like five days with me and my husband. So this is an informed joke. You know what? <laughs> it's a truth-based joke and it's my favorite kind. Hannah, you already know this, but for your sake, Vanessa, we're going to explain our segments as we go, starting with this one, why this, why now? So in this segment, we theorize why a particular piece of pop culture became zeitgeisty in a particular historical moment. Yeah, and today we are going to talk about Bridgerton, specifically the Netflix adaptation of Bridgerton. So, Vanessa, Marcel, to start off, I want to hear a little bit about your relationships with Bridgerton, the Netflix series. And I also want to know whether you were romance readers prior to watching it or have become romance readers since. Tell me about how you feel about romance. Vanessa, I would love it if you went first. I'm happy to. So depending on what we define as romance novels, right? Like I loved Jane Eyre and Jane Austen in high school and college, but I don't feel like that's quite what we mean by romance novels, even though those are canonically romance novels. I became a big romance reader in November of 2016. (laughs) If you had asked me, did you start reading romance novels because Donald Trump was elected? It, like, did not occur to me that that is what was happening. You would have been, like, coincidence. Yeah, absolutely did not occur to me. I, a friend of mine, Emmy, had sent me this book that she loved. She had sent it to me on my e-reader called The Duke and I by Julia Quinn. It sat on my e-reader for literal years. And I was, like, trying to read. I was just very distracted and couldn't read. And so I was like, fine, I'll open this stupid book that is clearly beneath me. But, like, that's where I am. And, like, came up for air six hours later and was like, (laughs) that book was stupid, but I do want to read the next one. And then it took me a really long time to just, like, accept that I was a romance reader. I finished the eight Bridgertons books, and then I was like, they mentioned the Smythe Smiths in the Bridgerton books. I I should probably read the four Smythe Smith books. And then I was like, just to check. Just to check what's going on. And then I'll I'll be a Julia Quinn completist, but she's probably the only good romance writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Probably other smart people agree that this is the one that you can read and still be smart. Exactly. And then eventually I was just like, no, these are amazing and I love them. And then can I make my major Bridgerton flex now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you simply must. So I decided with my partner in crime, Ariana Nettleman, to make a podcast about romance novels. And so we like blindly wrote to Julia Quinn one night being like, hey, you lived in the same dorm where I'm now a dorm mom. Do you want to be on our podcast? And she said yes. Wow. And then we went to dinner with her because I happen to be in Seattle where she lives. And she was like, do you guys want to know a secret? And we were like, yes. And she was like, Shonda Rhimes just picked up the Bridgerton series. Oh my God. And I was like, what? And she was like, you can't tell anyone. So I, like that is how (laughs) original, like at the ground floor of Bridgerton I was. I knew before it was public, y'all. This is an incredible like combination of being both a hipster and public romance reader. Yes. Fair. Vanessa, I just love secrets. Mm-hmm. And yes. even even now that it's not a secret anymore, I love knowing that that secret was gifted to you. Yes. And I love knowing that 
just, you know, knowing you, you kept it. (laughs) I did. And I got to say, like, Julia Quinn and I bonded because, like, the reason she trusted me with the secret is, like, we were both, like, dorky Jewish women who were, like, talking about which synagogues our families went to in the San Fernando Valley, right? It wasn't like, Julia Quinn is awesome. She's not cool in the same way that I'm not cool, right? And so this was like bonding over, we were in an Indian restaurant saying to the waiter, no, very mild, we can't handle any spice as we were, you know, sharing the secret. So. No, very mild. Imagine we're from a people where the spice is dill. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Salt and onion. Sorry, and onion. I take it back. So that is where this super hot goss came to me, everyone. I love that. I love it. But that's my romance reading. It really started like out of a place of desperation and trauma of like not being able to read what I thought of at the time as like real books. And so like desperately plunging on this thing that has now become just like such a big part of my life. Yeah, that is really beautiful. Marcel, I know I don't think you read romance novels, but I think you watched Bridgerton. I did watch Bridgerton. I have consumed a few romance novels and I do, you know this about me, Hannah. I love love. and Marcel loves love. I love love. And so... My not reading romance novels doesn't come from a place of snark. It might have at one time, but it's more just that I feel like as a genre, it's really, really... I don't know where, you know where to, to start. start is bit, oh, but, but, but Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I know, I Her know. Her DMs I will know. simply be ruined. <laughs> <laughs> Let me clarify. So some romance novels that I have read include... All of the Outlander series books. Oh, Diana Gabaldon would be very upset with you. She says that these are not technically romance novels. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's yeah. extremely silly. She hasn't read her own They books. are romantic novels. They're romantic novels. I actually kind of agree they're not romance novels, but they are. Yeah, they're historical romantic novels. They are not romance novels. I love them. They're gateway romance, but Marcel, the difference, the really key difference is that romance guarantees a happily ever after at the end of the book. Yeah. Okay. Whereas end of Outlander 2. I know. I can quote. Do you I want know. me to quote it to you right now, though? And every time no. every time you think things going to work out for them, another war. I know. Okay. Understood. Okay. But I want to talk about what happened somewhere around, you know, 2020 to make this, like, really widely disparaged sort of women-only book genre something that, you know, could afford this kind of multi-million dollar adaptation. So we're going to do a little bit of historical context here, and then we'll get into some theory. So Julia Quinn published the Bridgerton books between 2000 and 2006. The TV adaptation was released in 2020. So we've got like a lag of about 20 years in between for this to go from something a friend sends you on Kindle that you (laughs) refuse to read to something that 82 million people watched, which is how many people watched the first season, which set a record for being the most viewed Netflix original series until that record was broken by season two of Bridgerton. You know, that's more people than the entire 
nation state called Canada. That's like, oh, yeah. That's like twice, almost three times, not quite three times, but it's like more than twice as many people as the entire country. Incredible that you know how many people there are in Canada. Okay, so I am really curious for us to sort of collectively think through in this episode what happened between 2000 and 2020 to facilitate this kind of shift of romance from something that women read often in private, often with some like attendant feelings of shame to prestige television. Because like Bridgerton's not just popular, it has won awards. I was just at a wedding where the bride walked down the aisle to the score from Bridgerton. Incredible. I love it. That is like not a piece of culture that people are feeling ashamed of. Nope. That is like something people are publicly celebrating. You know, that in part comes with like the prestige of a producer like Shonda Rhimes. It comes with the prestige of Netflix, the prestige of just the budget. Yeah. Right? Like this is serious culture. We can tell because it looks really good. Some of the things that predate this, I think we've got to look at adaptations that preceded it. For example, how successful the adaptation of Outlander was. Outlander is not textbook romance because it doesn't have a happily ever after for the characters at the end of the book. And that is like the top genre requirement of romance. If you're going to be shelved in the romance section, those people have to be together and happy at the end of the book. And it's not going to get fucked up in a future book. Mm -hmm. That is the promise that you have made. But part of the success of the adaptation of Outlander is that there are war scenes, right? And so it was a perfect gateway because it's not really romance. There is such hot romance and sex. But you're like, whatever, I'm watching a war show about, like, the Scottish Highlands, right? It had a great cover. And, like, serious history. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of why Outlander is a gateway into romance reading for a lot of readers. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, it was for me, right? I could have started my story in 2009 when I read Outlander and burnt out my friend's flashlight doing it. But you're a purist. I'm a purist. I answered the question as asked. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I feel like HBO has really kind of shifted our expectations for, you know what, I'm about to say a real truism. I feel like HBO has really shifted our expectations for prestige television when they literally fucking defined it. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's fair. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is how much unbridled passion and sex is allowed in HBO shows. So like whether it's like Sex in the City or like True Blood or Game of Thrones, like all of these shows are like people have sex and people enjoy sex and we're going to show people enjoying having sex on television. Yeah. And that is definitely part of what primed viewers to watch romance adaptations, though, as we will discuss in the next segment, they had to tone the sex way down (gasps) in Bridgerton for the adaptation. Whoa. Yeah. So we've got, I think, two sort of interesting parallel histories, because we can talk about sort of the prestige adaptations of romance novels and what shifts in the TV space to make that possible. And then I think we also need to talk about what's happening in the actual world of romance 
reading at the same time. Marcel, you made a face like you thought of I thing. made a face because I just suddenly thought of Fifty Shades of Grey. Because when we talked about this, I made the joke that Fifty Shades of Grey walked so that Bridgerton could run. But that is a funny joke because there are many other things that walked so that Fifty Shades could run. I think that that's right. Other things are happening at this time, like technology, right? The reason that Fifty Shades of Grey was as successful as it was is because of e-readers, right? People weren't ashamed to read it because you didn't know what they were reading. Of course. And so yeah, suddenly you could privately read in public. You don't get Fifty Shades of Grey without that. And, the, you know, again, we can talk about I read Fifty Shades of Grey long before I read Bridgerton. And the thing that blew my mind the first time I read Fifty Shades of Grey, I was like, don't you understand what the actual fantasy is? The actual fantasy is a guy sends you a computer and sends you the internet installation guy. Right? Like, it's not the sex. It's like, it's that a woman (laughs) wrote a man. And so he doesn't just get her a car. He gets her an insurance policy. Right? Like, yeah. and I was like, this is the hottest fucking thing I've ever read. And again, I wouldn't have read it if I didn't have my Kindle and couldn't have read it in private. And so, like, the technology aspects of this and, like, the multifaceted, like, amazingness of this, I do think it's complicated how we got here. It's complicated. And the public-private dimension is a thing I really want us to delve into more because it's so interesting to think about this parallel of romance going public in the form of adaptations, in the form of prestige literary coverage. So in 2018, Jamie Green becomes the debut New York Times romance columnist. Like, bringing romance into the public sphere of literary conversations in a way they never have been before. So we've got this conversation happening being like, don't be ashamed of reading romance. Romance is real literature. Romance should be taken seriously. And then we've got the rise of e-readers and people just being like, I'm reading smut on the train. (laughs) And the change of romance covers, right? This is when romance covers go from the Fabio model, which obviously it hasn't been Fabio for years. The defabiofication. Yeah, to cartoons. Explain for me, because my relationship to romance is, is very limited. If we weren't on a timeline right now, I would go and physically get for you one of the first romance novels I ever owned, no, 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 I- which has classic, just like incredible cover art. Fabio was literally, that's his claim to fame. Totally. I I think, I I feel like those of us who have seen parodies of romance, like we know the like open shirt and the muscles and the horse and the long hair and the wind, but what happened? So then about seven years ago, yeah, they started doing these like very cute cartoon drawings. And The Wedding Date by Jasmine Guillory was the most prominent early one of these, but The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. Often these are books written by women of color and like there's real pushback by women of color who write romance novels to be like, nope, I want dark-skinned Black women on the cover of my romance novel. Don't draw a flippin' cartoon. So they have become more socially acceptable to read in public because of these cartoons. But, right, like, there's pushback. Don't make it fucking acceptable to read in public or this should actually be acceptable to read in public. So it's been really interesting, like, the evolution of this public-private sphere that you're talking about. Yeah. And the trends that we're talking about just are continuing to escalate. Like in 2021, Penguin Random House romance sales went up 50%, which is huge. And 
I got a theory about why it is, and I think it has a lot to do not only with pandemic comfort reading, but with women leaving the workplace in record numbers during the pandemic. And that is all context, I think, that will help us to theorize the rise of romance a little more. I hope everyone is ready to theorize romance for a while in the theory we need. So I'm going to be drawing primarily here on the work of American literary and cultural studies scholar Janice Radway, who brag I was on a panel with once. (gasps) How cool are you? Yeah, yeah, that's my claim to fame. I may not have gotten any secrets from Julia Quinn, but I did (laughs) co-present with Janice Radway at the MLA. No, I think that's cooler. (laughs) I love Julia Quinn, but Janice is an icon. She's so cool. She was talking about zines. That's her new research area. But we're not talking about her zine research. We are talking about her field-defining 1984 book, Reading the Romance, Women, Patriarchy, and Popular Literature. Vanessa... Are you familiar with Janice Radway's work? So I'm in the middle of a move and I have a little box of books that I'm like, these are the books that I need with me until the day of the move. The last load in the car is purse, dog, and small box of books. And reading the romance is in my small box of books. I like can't do things without it. I can't do my work without it. It's seminal. Ugh, no, it's not. Gross. It's ovulol. (laughs) It's ovulol. It's vaginal. (laughs) It's vaginal. (laughs) Say what you will about reading the romance. It is definitely vaginal. (laughs) And Marcel, since this is an audio medium, people couldn't see you hold up your copy just now. Tell me about your relationship to Radway's scholarship. I was introduced to Jan Radway by my thesis supervisor at the time, Julie Rack, who was helping me to figure out how to theorize women's science fiction and fantasy writing. Because it turned out at that point in my dissertation work that nobody had written about the specific texts that I wanted to write about. And I was having a really hard time learning how to theorize why these women would be writing in this genre and why It is relevant that women were reading it. Anyway, even though Radway is talking about romance, it was really helpful for me in terms of learning how to, like, understand women's reading as a practice and as a kind of practice that exists outside the very classically theorized political spheres of the importance of literature, you know? Yeah, beautifully said. And that was sort of Radway's, like, field-defining intervention. I just read in the 1994 re-release of Reading the Romance, there's an updated introduction. She's reflecting back from the perspective of a decade on writing this book and recognizing some interesting things, like she was doing a thing in the States that was basically in trying to invent cultural studies while cultural studies was simultaneously being invented as a field in the UK by the Birmingham School. And that sort of there's like this parallel development happening at a moment when the sort of, you know, big intervention was all of these scholars starting to say, like, maybe our job's not just to look at like great works, quote unquote, of a culture and to assume that like, 
by looking at the great works, that's the way we best understand a culture. Like maybe we should actually be looking at the things that people really read. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that was like a mind-blowing intervention in and of itself, the idea that we should study popular culture. But then on top of that, Radway was like, well, it's not just enough to take sort of the methods that we've developed to study great works and use those on popular culture. Because, like, if you try to read a romance novel using, like, the new critical lenses that you would use to talk about modernist poetry, like, it's not it's not going to thrive under that particular lens. So... You also need new methodologies. And one of Radway's big interventions was the idea of ethnographies of reading. Oh, what's an ethnography? An ethnography is a genre of writing that emerged out of anthropology as a discipline. And it's essentially a sort of study of the way people do something. Mm, So usually sort of really embedded in that cultural context. And it's a way of like really looking at all of the like cultural and social minutia that surrounds a particular kind of cultural practice. So Radway's doing an ethnography of romance reading in this book. In her big follow-up, A Feeling for Books, she actually does an auto-ethnography, which is where you do an ethnography of yourself, in order to theorize the Book of the Month Club. And, like, lo and behold, we've got an expert on ethnographies of reading here, because, Vanessa, I believe... Uh, you have, in some ways, written sort of an, an autoethnography of reading. <laughs> wow, that makes, I love what that makes me sound like. Um, it makes me sound like an academic. Oh, my God. My mom is so proud right now. It's what she wanted me to be. Um, I wrote what I call a collection of sermons using Jane Eyre as the liturgy instead of the Bible. So, yes, and, like, explore my relationship with Jane Eyre. I mean, it's mostly not about my relationship with Jane Eyre. It really just is, my book is an attempt to say, like, you can treat anything as sacred. You can live your life in conversation with whatever text you want to. And if that is Sex in the City, like, great. Just, like, do it. Do it well. Do it with passion. And my text is this, like, very disturbing romance novel from the 1830s. Uh-huh. But, yeah, I just think that books are a great place to go to for meaning making and it doesn't have to be the bible. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And the way that we make meaning with books is personal and specific. Right. And I will say like a book that blew my mind. So I was studying at Harvard Divinity School and trying to figure out my own methodology for treating secular things as sacred. And just for fun, I read Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. And it blew my mind because she was writing highly intellectual and scholarly essays mixed with memoir personal essays. One that really blew my mind was like using Hunger Games as a text, right? And I was like, oh my God, you can do all three of those things at once, right? And so I feel like I'm sure there are other authors that, you know, Roxanne Gay is on their shoulders and other authors who are doing it at the same time. But she was the first author who I came across who was like, look, I live my life in conversation with Hunger Games. Um, And let me talk to you about my body and mental health and sexual assault in conversation with the Hunger Games. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think cultural studies as a discipline, I think 
in a lot of ways paved the way for this rise of a particular kind of pop culture criticism writing that brings memoir in because it legitimized the idea that we are living our lives in conversation with all kinds of popular culture and that the relationship we have to popular culture is significant and worth talking about. Right. And there's a huge rise in this kind of books in the 2000s, right? Like My Life in Middlemarch, How Proust Can Save Your Life, right? Like these are very niche, like kind of typical kinds of books that are complicated. <laughs> I have thoughts on them that are not relevant to this conversation. Com- complicated. So in addition to sort of bringing this this ethnographic lens in and saying, like, we should talk about what people do with books. Another key intervention of reading the romance lies in how Radway thinks about communities of interpretation. Um, so, Marcel, I'm going to ask you to read this quote. And this is from that 1994 revised introduction to the book. Quote, it was the women readers' construction of the act of romance reading as a declaration of independence that surprised me into the realization that the meaning of their media use was multiply determined and internally contradictory, and that to get at its complexity, it would be helpful to distinguish analytically between the significance of the event of reading and the meaning of the text constructed as its consequence. What the book gradually became then was less an account of the way romances as texts were interpreted than of the way romance reading as a form of behavior operated as a complex intervention in the ongoing social life of actual social subjects, women who saw themselves first as wives and mothers. End quote. Okay, beautifully, beautifully read, Marcel. Can you explain to us what that quote tells us? So what I'm getting from this long quote here is that Radway is saying that when we look at romance reading and we look at people who are reading romance novels, what is interesting is less the texts that they are choosing and more about the practice. So more about what it means to the reading subject to carve out space for themselves in their lives and how we kind of see this as a pattern across like a demographic of people. Yes, a hundred percent. And Radway gets into like, they do have preferences, you know, her romance readers. They have preferences for particular kinds of stories and she does a study of what they prefer. But at the heart, the intervention that comes from her conversations with these readers is that first and foremost, it's the fact of reading as an act of independence, as a sort of clawing back of a chunk of your day to do something that is non-productive and solely for you. And that's the piece that feels radical to them. And it's just important to me to say that two of the super consumers of romance novels demographically are people in nursing homes and people in prison. Interesting. And that is true across gender, right? And so, like, this idea of reading toward hope, toward a happy ending, while in these places that we traditionally think of as places of being trapped, like being a housewife in the 70s when Radway was doing, the you know, the bulk of her research, 70s and 80s, like, that seems like another kind of trapped to me. Yeah. 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 That's so, that's, 
a really powerful parallel of like, you know, who are the subjects who are in positions where they have really minimal agency in terms of how they spend their day-to-day lives and how does reading figure as a sort of space of imaginative escape. There tends to be disdain for people who read for escape, and I think that that is a disdain that emerges from people who have a lot of control over what their day-to-day lives look like. Well, and I think, too, the other relationship between, say, housewives and people in nursing homes and people in prisons, I think for people who don't know what that life entails— it is assumed that they have nothing to do all day anyway, as though it is some kind of like life of leisure to know that somebody in that space is taking time to read a romance novel. It's like, well, not only do you have all this time that you could do anything with and be productive, instead you're choosing to spend your already very leisurely existence doing something very selfish. So there's like layers of willful misunderstanding and disdain for for these practices. Yeah. And isn't that just the case of the cultural practices of all marginalized groups, just layers of willful misunderstanding and disdain? Yeah. The other thing that I feel like I have to say in this context is, like, I just always have to misquote Ursula K. Le Guin, which is Right, like people talk shit about escapism, but you rarely escape to bad places. You escape to, right, like places of hope. You escape out of prison. You escape to beautiful places. And so we need escape in order to imagine a better world so that we can build that better world. Like these are radical acts to be engaging in and like deeply important ones. Okay. Yes. And. When we start to actually talk about the content of romance as a genre, we do have to talk about what people are escaping into and what kind of fantasy is being presented as the one you want to escape to. So I'm going to ask you, Vanessa, and you, Marcel, to read two Radway quotes back to back, and then we're going to discuss the tensions inherent therein. Quote, I tried to make a case for seeing romance reading as a form of individual resistance to a situation predicated on the assumption that it is women alone who are responsible for the care and emotional nurturance of others. Romance reading buys time and privacy for women, even as it addresses the corollary consequence of their situation, the physical exhaustion and emotional depletion brought about by the fact that no one within the patriarchal family is charged with their care, end quote. Mm. Quote, does the romance's endless rediscovery of the virtues of a passive female sexuality merely stitch the reader ever more resolutely into the fabric of patriarchal culture? Or alternatively, does the satisfaction a reader derives from the act of reading itself, an act she chooses, often in explicit defiance of others' opposition, lead to a new sense of strength and independence? Romance authors assert that the newly active more insistent female sexuality displayed in the genre is still most adequately fulfilled in an intimate, monogamous relationship characterized by love and permanence, end quote. So, romance, is it patriarchal or is it feminist? Discuss. (sighs) 
I have, I get, I was just, uh, okay. <laughs> obviously, the answer is both. But you here's know, my thing. You know, you know, the secret answer is always both. both. Sure, sure, sure. I know. I'm sorry. So, yes, it's incredibly patriarchal. But why is this the place where we are attacking patriarchy, where it is giving women's pleasure? No, Vanessa, we're attacking it everywhere. We're attacking it everywhere. Don't even sure, worry about it. <laughs> not we, but society, right? Like, why is society like, and that is patriarchal. I'm like, do you know what else is patriarchal? The gender wage gap. Go fix that. And then you can address romance novel patriarchy. Like, we are using the tool of our oppression to enjoy ourselves. Leave it to us. And that is the Feminist Radical Act. Thank you for coming to my speech. I will stop. I think that that is like so, so beautifully framed, Vanessa, because you are you are totally right. We like everything we do is in the service of the patriarchy. It is so hard to get out of it. And so why is it that it's only when a marginalized group engages in some kind of pleasure, you know? Like, I think about this all the time whenever TERFs get really pissed off about how, like, trans women who really, like, lean into femininity, it's like, well, you're saying that you can only be a woman if you wear, like, lipstick and shave. And it's like, well, okay, sure, but also so are all of these other women. So right. what if we, Why like, do you only get like, mad? Yeah, you're only getting mad at this one group of people, and it's the most marginalized group of people. So, yeah, I think you really, uh, I think you really articulated it. The thing I can't, like, whenever sort of somebody says, like, oh, you know, books like Fifty Shades of Grey are setting feminism back, I'm like, okay, but are reading our women's reading, women's reading of romance accelerates with our liberation. <laughs> like, it just does. It's like we read more romance as we become freer. So that does suggest that it's however it is operating in our lives, it is not sending us back. The other thing I'll say is just that I really do think reading romance novels for the last seven years has taught me to demand more of men. Mm. I'm like, oh, it, it is completely fictional, but I think almost every romance novel I've read, I think that there may be three or four exceptions, have been written by women. But it feels possible when you're in that imaginative space and it is Mr. Winterborn. It is actually Mr. Winterborn. It is not Lisa Kleepass who is like showing you that a man can take your headache very seriously and your headache can be a problem for him, for him to help you solve. And then I can act like my headache really matters around my husband. And because I act like it matters, my husband's not a monster. So he acts like my headache matters. Whereas before, I think I would have hidden my headache and been like, it's just a headache. Because everything else you read about headaches is represented in Victorian times or like women getting the vapors. So to your point, Hannah, I think that they are instrumental in our liberation, not only representative of like the furthering of feminism. I love that. I really love that. The, that like imagining the possibilities of being nurtured then brings into your day-to-day life a different kind of behavior in terms of your understanding of the ways that you deserve care. Yeah. 
No, and I think it's really true. Like, until I read Fifty Shades of Grey, it did not occur to me that one of the reasons I don't like gifts is that I have always experienced gifts specifically from men as a burden, right? I'm like, thank you for this. I can't actually use it, right? Like, it's battery-operated, and I can't afford those batteries, whatever it is, right? Like, even in the most basic levels. And then I was like, I never totally articulated that to myself. And then in Fifty Shades of Grey, she gets a computer. And I'm like, what the fuck is she going to do with that? And then the internet setup guy comes. And I'm like, imagine a man who sends the internet guy, right? And then, like, I'm like, oh, it's not that I don't like gifts. It's that I hate thoughtless gifts. You don't want somebody to give you logistics. (laughs) Right. Or like cost me money. I need things to actually be thought out in order for them to be helpful. And romance novels like taught me that I can expect and ask for that. I love it. Okay. I really want us to get into talking about Bridgerton. But before we do that, there's one other thing I want to bring into the conversation because I do want to talk about the sex of it all. And There are many ways in which reading the romance stays relevant, but when Bradway gets into the specifics of romance novels, it's extremely romance novels from the 1970s, and the genre has changed. So I'm going to bring into conversation a very contemporary article. This was published this year in a special issue of a popular culture journal about Bridgerton. This article in particular is by Kyra Hunting. It's called From Private Pleasure to Erotic Spectacle, Adapting Bridgerton to Female Audience Desires. And what Hunting does in it is basically a close reading of how the sex was adapted between Julia Quinn's first two Bridgerton novels and the first two seasons of the Netflix series. And her main argument is that the sex on the Netflix adaptation is way tamer And that it needs to be both because in television as a medium, more work has to be done to distinguish like prestige television from pornography. And that is something that like the Bridgerton producers have done a lot of work to maintain, like really diligently sending takedown notices to keep all the sex scenes off Pornhub without really caring if they're on YouTube. Like, it's okay for them to be YouTube. They can't be on Pornhub because they can't be porn. But romance novels have been blurring the lines between romance and erotica for way longer. And a big part of why that blurring can happen and why the sex can get, like, pretty fucking risque in romance novels is because of the private way women consume that content, right? You're not like sitting down in the living room with your friends or your partner and watching it. You're like, re- you're reading that book. <laughs> it's all it's all up here. So, Marcel, would you please read this one quote from Kyra Hunting? Quote, for romance novel fans, smut to varying degrees is an accepted and desirable convention in the genre. Many romance novels not only depict, but are designed to produce erotic pleasure. As a premium show on Netflix associated with a prominent media brand, Shondaland, the Bridgerton series draws on its perceived pushing of boundaries regarding sexual depictions for marketing appeal, while also policing boundaries around its aestheticized eroticism and its appropriate uses. End quote. So, if there's 
less room for ambivalence, especially around things like consent and power dynamics in television meant for the female gaze than there is in romance novels. And if television viewing is a more public activity than romance reading, then arguably some aspects of what women enjoy about reading romance is inevitably lost in an adaptation like Bridgerton. And that claim leads me to my thesis statement. (gasps) And that means it's time for our next segment. Hi, listeners. This is Naomi Westwater. You may know me from my previous classes at Not Sorry. I'm dropping into your feed today to let you know about an upcoming course I'm running starting March 17th called Creating Daily Ritual, Tarot as a Sacred Practice. In this course, I will teach you about the history and meaning of the cards in the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck and model how they can be used as a tool for self-reflection and creativity. Through lecture, discussion with your classmates, and solo journaling, I will aim to help you develop your individual connection with tarot, this ancient tool for meaning-making. If you're looking to elevate your daily ritual, please join me starting Sunday evening, March 17th, for six weeks of habit-building, learning, and community. Head to notsorryworks.com for more information, and be sure to check out our sliding scale pricing and scholarships listed on the website. That's notsorryworks.com. Okay, Hannah, it's the segment in this essay, I will. So it's time for you to make a bold, critical assertion. You're going to make the internet meme come to life. And Vanessa and I are going to pick it apart. Can't wait. While the mainstream success of the Netflix series Bridgerton signals a watershed moment in the mainstream acceptance of romance novels as a legitimate form of cultural production, the adaptation of romance to the small screen disrupts many of the distinct pleasures of romance reading, pleasures that might more accurately account for the surge in romance reading during the pandemic. What both the novels and their adaptation have in common, however, is the construction of the past as a fantastic space that, despite its heightened gender restrictions, offers viewers a fantasy of escape from the hazards of modernity. In this essay, I will... Oh, Hannah, it's so good. It's perfect. You just, you really, you got it. You got it. You don't even need to finish. It's so perfect. I think that this is really right. I wrote an article for Slate about the adaptation of season two of Bridgerton. And that I think that season two of Bridgerton made a mistake. There is a huge difference in the book and the season. So in the book, The Viscount That Loved Me, Kate and Anthony get engaged very early. It's like very different. And they get engaged because Anthony has this trauma because his father died of a bee sting in front of him. And a bee lands on Kate's breast. And the bee stings Kate on her breast. And he goes into trauma response and so sucks the bee sting out of Kate's breast. And this is like 
one third of the way through the book. And they get caught in that compromising situation. And so he's like, great, we got to get married. I'm a gentleman. This is what we do. We get married. And then, as many people know, in the series, it's totally different, right? Like, they have that B moment, but actually they don't get together until the very end of the series. This is not a, you know, trapped together situation. And I think that the reason that Shondaland did that is because books one and two of Bridgerton and season one, and therefore seasons one and two of Bridgerton would be very similar, right? There's this trapped together caught element, But that is one of the virtues of romance, is that you actually get to explore the differences of nuance because of the similarities of tropes. And you can actually get this, like, really interesting comparison of Anthony, the hero in season two of Bridgerton, and Simon, right? Like, these are two men who are traumatized by their fathers, one because he hated his father and the other because he loved his father and lost him. And, like, that is very interesting, right? But you lose the nuance of that comparison by trying to make seasons one and two so different, by not giving into the genre of it. And I... Yeah, I think, again, like, this is about adaptation, right? People would be saying, people who don't know romance well would be like, oh, my God, this is just like last season, right? Whereas romance readers are like, yes, and that's the point. Like, that's the brilliance. And so, I, yeah, I think that your point about sex scenes, right, we can see that same point enacted in different places in this adaptation process. Yeah, absolutely. A sense that some of the characteristics of romance as a genre that create the characteristic pleasures of reading romance get lost in the adaptation, in part because of different norms around representing sex. But you're right, also because of different norms of how narrative is expected to work and like the role of novelty versus familiarity and you know, they're making it prestige television. Other genres of television don't have expectations of novelty in the same way and absolutely thrive in the space of, like, tiny variations on a theme. But, like, in the model of prestige TV, it's like things need to keep growing, escalating, changing. Right. And so because of the genre, we have this new type of TV But the TV adaptations betray what's so beautiful about the genre to some extent. I have a question. I'm wondering if the unintended benefit of that is that viewers who enjoyed the series and decide that they want to read the books then are able to retain some of that reading for the first time pleasure that often gets lost when you know the ending because the story takes on different twists and turns, mayhaps? I think, yes. And I think that there are other benefits too, right? Like the novels don't have any diversity. And I don't think that Bridgerton has handled diversity in its shows brilliantly. I like, I I think that it is flawed, but I love that it's trying to. And like, why should beautiful actors not be able to be in Regency dramas just because they were you know, because it, it's a, a continuation of forms of oppression that existed in the 19th century, right? That we can't cast Black actors in these roles. And so I'm excited for that. And so, yeah, some of these deviations are just for the good. You know, I I absolutely think 
And yeah, one of them being, I hope that people then go back and read the books and are like, wait, what happened? <laughs> He's sucking on her boob in front of people. What? <laughs> well, this is way hotter than the TV show. My goodness. It's going to be. Um, Vanessa, on your point of the racial diversity in the series, that is a thing I'm really interested in, like the conversations around when we think about sort of the role of fantasy and escape in historical romance in particular, because, you know, we talked a little bit when talking about Radway about sort of the way that romance readers are escaping into a fantastical world, but it's one that is often more at least on the surface, seems to be more restrictive in terms of gender norms. But anybody who reads historical romance knows that the history these characters are being dropped into has very little to do with actual history. Like, it's really not about the actual past. It's about the past as a fantastical construction of a place like, it's another genre of fantasy, right? Like, like Regency is a fantasy construct like Middle Earth is. Absolutely. And the main way I read the racial diversity of Bridgerton was not as a sort of historically accurate corrective, because, like, there were people of color in England during the Regency era. We just know that. But as an extension of who that fantasy is allowed to be for. Because if it is a fantastical space where we can, like, escape, then, like, everybody can escape there, right? Oh, totally. My critique of it is just that I think season one in particular of Bridgerton did kind of a half-assed job of it. Yeah. I want either that argument, right, where it's, like, either actual representations based on accuracy because there were people of color in England at the time, or we're just doing race-blind casting, like— Let's just go with it. Or there is a reason why there are people of color in the ton and like in that society. And we're going to tell you that story. And instead, what season one of Bridgerton did was pretend it was race blind casting for like the first four episodes. And then there was like one conversation that's like, we get to be here as black people because of this one thing. And you're like, okay, that's not enough information. You know, and I think that they've done some correctives of that. Some of the correction that they did of that was in the show Queen Charlotte, which I think does a huge disservice to mental health, where King George has, like, some mysterious anxiety-induced bipolar disorder that, like, doesn't exist in reality. So I agree with you, Hannah, but just like with fantasy, right, like dragon Middle-earth fantasy, I think that there are more and less responsible ways to be creative within the fantasy space. And I also love there are some more accurate romance novels, right? Bringing Down the Duke really does a great job of, like, doing a historically accurate, you know, view of blue stockings at Oxford at a certain time and the, like, abject poverty they would live in, right? Like, different novels handle this differently. But I do think that there have been moments where the Bridgerton series has handled these, like, beautiful opportunities for fantasy, Poorly. A hundred percent. And that the, you know, one of the big arguments in Hunting's article that I referenced in the last segment is that the combination of attempting to adapt the complexities of romance novel sex, which very frequently plays with consent and aggression, 
That's really common. It's kind of in the DNA of modern romance novels. And bringing that onto the screen, even in a sort of toned down fashion, while also introducing racial diversity, created a dynamic in the relationship between Simon and Daphne that was, as many people have discussed, really distressing because Daphne does... It's a white woman assaulting a black man. It's a white woman assaulting a black man and forcing him to impregnate her, which has really harrowing historical resonances that like were not responsibly handled in that first season at all. And again, I think that you're speaking to this like co-watching and just the way that we assume more people watch TV than read any single book. In reading a piece of genre fiction, when you are reading it yourself, you know intuitively that representation does not mean condoning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That something being shown to you is not the book saying it's okay. Yeah. Right. Like you read that and you're like, it's representing this. That doesn't mean that the author thinks it's good. Right. And you're like, so yes, it's really creepy that Daphne does that, but whatever. It's also hot. And like, I got turned on by it. And this is a safe space where I can get turned on by X, Y, and Z thing. But as soon as it becomes a TV show, right, and you're sitting there and watching it with someone else, you're like, I don't think that's okay, right? Like, it actually is representing you because it's become a social experience. And so, yeah, it's harder to remember that representation isn't condoning behavior on a TV show that has, you know, three times the size of Canada watching it. (laughs) Is part of the issue perhaps that we as a culture are not very good at taking the experiences of male survivors of sexual assault seriously. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's part of like the reason why that was able to make it into the series at all, despite the fact that sexual violence in romance novels has become really unpopular since the 70s and 80s when it really had its heyday is that one of many functions of patriarchy is that we don't think of men as potential victims of sexual violence because men are always positioned... Of, of women. Of, of women or of men. Like, yeah, men. You know, yeah, totally, just, totally, just totally. Just men are, men are the aggressors as depicted in patriarchy. And if a man is subject to sexual violence, it's emasculating, which, you know, ties into sort of homophobic depictions of male sexual violence. But, like, we've got rom-coms where... We see men being assaulted and it's just played as a joke in an era when that would not be done with female characters, for sure. It also shows about our society that we think that if you can physically, literally get out of the situation, then it's a little bit your fault that you were raped, right? Because I think that part of the argument is that Simon is bigger than Daphne. So did she really rape him? He could have thrown her off of him, right? Like, he could have literally removed her from him. And so, like, there's also just this belief that rape is, like, an A-B proposition. And that unless you are being bound and gagged, it's not really rape. Yeah. And in the book, it plays on ongoing sexual power dynamics between them including the fact that he does physically overpower her in earlier scenes. Again, in a way, like, I am a a truly, guys, I have read 71 romance novels this year so far. Oh my God, you're my hero. I am a voracious romance reader. And I, like, watching 
Game of Thrones on screen, for example, made me like physically ill. Like watching on-screen depictions of things that happen in books I read makes me feel a lot worse because they're just not the same medium and they just don't function the same way. And part of that difference is undeniably the function of both private consumption and what goes in hand in hand with the sort of private internal nature of reading, which is the function of our imaginations. That like, that's what makes it possible for me as a reader to picture things in the way that I need to or want to or will most enjoy. And it also is what makes the act of reading itself feel liberatory in the moment you're doing it because you are like escaping into your own imagination. And when you are, you know, being crushed on all sides by the soul-deadening banality of living under late capitalism, escaping into your own imagination slaps. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) Yeah. I know we're wrapping up this segment, but I would like to just return to the pleasures of watching Bridgerton in addition to the pleasures of reading romance novels. One of the I think, Hannah, to speak to that point of the soul-crushing banality of late capitalism, the Bridgerton sets are so luxurious and so oh my God, they're rich gorgeous. in technicolor, right? Like, they're yeah. so over-the-top saturated in colors. And I think it does a very good job of illustrating the feelings that you are encouraged to have via via color when you're watching this as a fantasy, as a kind of fantasy genre. Yes. It's a fantasy on every level, right? It's a high-functioning family with eight children, all of whom love each other and tease each other the perfect amount and, like, sneak cigarettes together and, right, like, who doesn't want to be a part of that family? It's also the benevolent rich person, right? These are super rich people who are good. I mean, like, who doesn't want that fantasy? It's a London mansion with wisteria, right? Who doesn't want that fantasy? And then it's, like, Taylor Swift covers in violin, right? Like, it is just designed to be this fantasy space, And I'm just, I got to say, like, when I watched that first episode, I was like, thank you. Like, I have been waiting my whole life to be catered to. (laughs) And I have taken every scrap you've thrown at me and been like, sure, Sex in the City, the movie. Like, thanks for trying. And then some scraps like Mamma Mia. I'm like, you did it. You did it. You gave me what I wanted. (laughs) And Bridgerton, right? Like, it's not perfect. It did not give me everything I want in the world. But I was just like, thank you for trying. You are trying so hard to cater to me. I am in your head. And I just love it. Like, keep trying. You're doing great. Yeah. I love I love that though. I love that idea of the sort of the visual and aesthetic design being an attempt to externalize the experience of imaginative escape. That like what is the visual vocabulary of imaginative escape into another time and space and how, you know, the series sacrifices historical accuracy over and over and over again. I mean, Sacrifices doesn't even care about it because the purpose it is putting history to is a sort of fantastical one that is about 
totally about the emotions that it's going to evoke for the viewer. I can't wait for the like Architectural Digest article to come out that is like Bridgerton changed landscape architecture, mm. right? Oh. Like everybody, like there's a shortage of wisteria and lavender <laughs> because everybody <laughs> wants it in their garden. I just like, I'm, this is going to be real, right? Like whose eyes see that and don't like feast on it and be like, me want more. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, me want more. Gun to my head, I couldn't tell you what wisteria looks like, but I, I take it. I looks take like your the point. cover of Bridgerton. <laughs> Wait for it. It looks like a fantastic escape from the patriarchy. It really does. <laughs> Flowers. Imagine a cascading waterfall of lavender. That mm. is what wisteria looks like. Hot. Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes and our other podcast ooh, on Acast or at awitchplease.ca. Some other things you can do at awitchplease.ca are sign up for our incredible newsletter, which slaps and has a playlist every month, which also slaps. You can read our transcripts. You can check out our merch. You can find reading lists for the episodes and learn more about our Patreon. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or praise, and especially praise, like like especially all of them, but especially praise, come hang out with us at Oh Witch Please on Instagram or Twitter, perhaps even threads, or on Patreon at patreon.com slash oh witch please special thanks to everyone on the witch please productions team including our digital content coordinator gabby iori our social media manager and marketing designer zoe mix our sound engineer eric magnus and our executive producer hannah rehack aka coach At the end of every episode, we will thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tier to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude this episode goes out to Jennifer, Kennelly, Carly, Emma BG, Margaret, Kate F, Sarah P, Cor M, Shaumara L, Caroline S, Guada, Kate O, Elizabeth P, Nicoletta P, Zoe M, Elizabeth C, Abigail C, any relation? Aisha W, Maggie M, Andrea W, Megan G, and Lydia O. Thank you, all of you. You literally make this possible. If that sounds like an awfully long list to you, it's probably because these folks are jumping on board to help us support Gender Playground, which is our new podcast about gender-affirming care for kids. You can check out the pilot episode if you haven't already in the Witch Please feed or see the pilot episode and a bunch of related resources on ohwitchplease.ca. It's a really good podcast and I really love it. And every episode gives me full body goosebumps. So I really think you should listen. Thanks, Hannah. That's so nice. We'll be back next episode to tackle another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. 
But until then, later, Gators! Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi listeners, this is Naomi Westwater. You may know me from my previous classes at Not Sorry. I'm dropping into your feed today to let you know about an upcoming course I'm running starting March 17th called Creating Daily Ritual, Tarot as a Sacred Practice. In this course, I will teach you about the history and meaning of the cards in the Rider-Waite-Smith Tarot deck and model how they can be used as a tool for self-reflection and creativity. Through lecture, discussion with your classmates, and solo journaling, I will aim to help you develop your individual connection with tarot, this ancient tool for meaning making. If you're looking to elevate your daily ritual, please join me starting Sunday evening, March 17th, for six weeks of habit building, learning, and community. Head to notsorryworks.com for more information. And be sure to check out our sliding scale pricing and scholarships listed on the website. That's notsorryworks.com.